Saturday the 17th of August. Welcome to Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. I'm coming to you live from Midori House in London. Welcome to today's programme. Ahead, no confidence or no deal. We examine the coming storm in British politics as Westminster inches ever closer to crashing us out of the European Union. Plus, two US newspaper publishers look set to merge, putting the future of many small city papers in doubt. Are we underestimating the crisis facing local news? I'll be joined by Charles Hecker and Juliet Foster to talk about that and the day's front pages too. That's all ahead on Monocle's House View, starting now. So joining me in the studio, Charles Hecker from Control Risks and the journalist and broadcaster Juliet Foster. Welcome both to the programme and a very happy weekend to you. Thank you so much. Good morning. We begin with no deal or no confidence. That is the choice that's facing Britain's parliamentarians as the cold reality of leaving the European Union without a deal inches ever closer. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson will head to Paris and Berlin this week to meet Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel. It's his first diplomatic trip to the EU since he became Prime Minister. Is it too late for anything good to come of it? Uh, Charles, what are your thoughts on that? Are we, is, uh, is Boris Johnson just walking into a big row this week? You know, I think, you know, before we launch into this conversation, which is going to be fascinating and, <laughs> and, and, and complicated... You need to share something, don't we, you, Charles? Well, no, I, just, I think we need to take a step back and say that what we're about to discuss is who's got the best plan for bringing down the government. And it's amazing that we have arrived at this moment in British politics. Um, And say what you like about the current government. Um, There is the possibility, of course, that the government will bring down the union. So (laughs) there is an argument to be made that something needs to happen here. Um, In the world of political risk and forecasting, one does scenarios. And... I think there is an argument to be made that the most likely scenario for the future is that nothing is going to happen at the G7 summit and that there will be conversations, but nothing substantive will emerge from them. What's going to happen is parliament will reassert itself and parliament will block a no-deal Brexit. What will happen then, though, is that Boris Johnson will say that Parliament is blocking the will of the people. And it's very comforting to see Juliet nodding her head across the studio. Um, And what will happen is we're going to have elections in November. There is one thing that you are assuming here, perhaps, Charles, which is Parliament can get its act together to block this. And we have seen, Juliet, in the last few days, uh, the ragtag gathering of those against a no-deal Brexit who seem to be more hell-bent on infighting than actually getting their act together and getting something sorted, which is arguably what Number 10 is banking on. And Yeah, but you see, Number 10 may well be banking on this, but let's be clear, the, uh, the, what I, the impression that I get is that even amongst leavers, there are a fair few leavers who did not want to crash out without a deal. So yes, Boris Johnson may well be enjoying the confusion in opposition ranks at the moment, but it doesn't necessarily mean that if an election were called in November or whenever, that he's going to be an automatic shoe-in. I personally think we're going to be back to square one. We're going to have that hung parliament scenario. And by virtue of that, it may well force us to have some sort of government of national unity. And I agree with you about... um, 
the fragmentation in the opposition because isn't it funny how it's it's all sort of happening now because certainly at the beginning there was much talk about this government of national unity how it would work but nobody looked at the specifics in other words who's going to lead it you've got a labor opposition which yes logically would be the 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 group that should lead it but you've got a leader who nobody likes even in his own party. He cannot command support across the House. And even if he were to lead it, there's no guarantee that his strategy is going to be acceptable to other players. He may well decide, well, OK, then let's extend Article 50 and let's pursue the negotiations, not to actually um, crash out, but certainly to have some sort of a compromise. But on the other hand, you have the Lib Dem position and indeed other MPs who say, well, look, there's no need to have an extension of Article 50. Let's just call a referendum again. Indeed, if, if you'd quick look at the uh, Le Monde today, the Le Monde, Le Monde is covering the fact that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, is proposing a union against Boris Johnson and, and a hard Brexit, but highlights the fact of all, of all these divisions. Um, Charles, who do you think is, is the leading voice in this who's going to be um, perhaps a, a, you know, a light that everybody can follow? Many people have said that the father of the house, Kenneth Clark, is the man who's he's a, lang, he's a longest standing MP and arguably he's one of the few grown-ups in the building. Yeah, what a fantastic opportunity for somebody like Ken, Ken Clark to come in as the caped crusader and sort of save <laughs> parliament and save the nation. And here's somebody who is, in spite of the fact that um, a conservative MP took a stab at him on live radio yesterday for his age, which mm. was extremely unfair and discriminatory, totally. I think, for somebody who's obviously got all his marbles still. And I'll quite f- a few other people's as well. Yes, that's right. <laughs> He's um, a very clever guy. What very a fantastic sharp. opportunity for somebody who really doesn't have a dog in this hunt anymore and who isn't a sort of dogmatic sort of raving um, you know ideologue to sort of sort everybody out to force everybody to take a pause and to say let's get our you know what together and and move forward in a coordinated fashion he's less controversial than Corbyn um, he is less controversial than anybody else in the Tory party um, he yeah I think that Ken Clark could very well be mm. the man of the hour what and I, and I, just, I just wanted to pick, pick, pick you up as well about the, the point about his age because I totally agree with you that is discriminatory especially at the time when we're talking about um, including more people in our political life in our economic life the fact that realistically people are being told you can't even consider retiring in your 60s. You're going to have to work beyond that. And I think that Ken Clark, I mean, he's a very experienced politician. This man has held some of the biggest offices in government and he's a liberal Tory and he's made it clear, look, as far as I'm concerned, I don't really want to stand again um, in the next election because, you know, I've been there, seen it done. It served my constituency. He's done it very well because he's been returned. And to, to use his age against him like that, outrageous, given that one of the most successful American presidents, Ronald Reagan, I think he was nudging into his 80s or something when he took power. He's certainly in his 70s. I, 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 know, I know what you're going to say, but again, <laughs> he was successful in his time, although, although Trump is trying to sort of deconstruct the legacy, whatever. But the principle, he was still an older man, an elderly man, who was voted in as president twice. We also have some bright women. We have Harriet Harman, who's, the Ken, who's Kenneth Clark's uh, sort of opposition figure. Mm, um, again, right. Very good at bringing people together. A cool, wise head. Exactly. Belongs to a generation of... Well, she sort of belongs to New Labour, but seems to have managed to, to, to not be attached with the toxicity of, that, of yes. that idea. And then we have this bright spark in the new leader of the Liberal Democrats, a woman called Jo Swinson, vehemently remain, positively, encouragingly remain. And I suddenly thought, well, if Harriet Harman, Ken Clark and Jo Swinson all got together... 
You've got an alliance of the three main opposition parties, but the big problem you've got is the Labour leader, Joe Cor- um, Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn, isn't part of this. No, and, and it was Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ, who said the first thing that you need to know in politics is how to count. And so we're all getting involved in sort of high-level calculus here in trying to put together the numbers. I mm. think that, you know, going to your original question, Emma, I think that it is much more likely that we'll just get a no-deal blocker than yes. having to go into a national unity government or a caretaker parliament. Because if you have only, say, a one-month window, and, and parliament has the rules for this, after a vote of no confidence, it's 14 days for the leader of the opposition to try to form a government that's Mm. probably not going to happen. Then you've got 25 days in which to set the date for a a general election. I think we're going to go down the block Brexit, extend Article 50, and have a general election rather than this sort of party scrum over forming a national government. And also as well, um, I I do agree with you because there are other factors that we have to bring to bear on this because you cannot detach this from the economics. Now, this week... We've had some really weak German growth figures or productivity numbers. We've also had some weak economic data from China. We've also had some rather disturbing behaviour going on in the bond markets. Now, I agree that economists, they they can't agree on on much. There are some things they do agree on. But again, this this whole idea about whether we're going into a recession or not, judging it by what's been happening on the bond markets, that's open to question. But look, where is the sanity in crashing an economy out of a trading block when you've got the start of a recession it wouldn't make sense surely if you if you if, even if you can sense that there is a recession on the on the horizon you try to cushion your economy i fear though that um Boris Johnson's um, lack of fear is something that is lack deeply of fear dangerous or just or just downright stupidity Isn't that's it? that's the point i'm talking look we've we've all been through recessions Recessions are nasty and simply saying to people, well, look, you know, we're British, we can handle this. Uh Uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. Recessions have a really powerful human consequence. And I'm sorry to sound like the Grim Reaper on this, but when you have severe recessions, suicide rates go up. What is Europe thinking about all of this? I mean, this is we are now in the middle of August. There's, you know, Ferragosta is happening in Italy, a, company, a country which is having its own uh, fun and games. I mean, yes, Macron and, and uh, Frau Merkel will meet Boris Johnson later this week. But I wonder whether just the rest of Europe is just sort of sitting on its sun lounges and, and just watching the punch up with, with a slightly raised eyebrow, but not letting the pulse quicken at all, Charles. So something very interesting happened the other day and that there was a leak of a document from the German government that said, fine, you want to go? Go. We're not fussed. We're ready. Mm. And if this is how you want to play it, we're happy to play along with you. And that piece of information does a few things. It shows, number one, that perhaps the Germans are just as good about at, at playing this this brinksmanship game as the British are, because there are leaks from the British government saying, we're going to do this and you better be ready. And now the Germans are leaking something saying, well, go ahead and do it because we're more ready than you are. Um, what it shows, though, is that the European Union, frankly, since the day after the referendum in 2016, has hewed to a, an open, a transparent 
a consistent and a unified line, and they're not going to break it. And and the UK has tried. It's gone to Poland. It's gone to Slovakia. It's gone to Hungary. It's made political appeals. It's made economic appeals to try to sort of pick apart this 27-country bloc, and it's just not happening. You can't do it because the risk to the bloc is so great. If you get one dissenting voice out of the 27, you the, the, the whole... European project could find itself under uh, under a sort of extreme strain. And I wonder whether this is something that the British government has not realised, that actually the balance is so delicate within Europe, the need for a unified voice is that much stronger, mm. whereas the United Kingdom can just thrash around like a beetle on its back. Which is, which is unforgivable, really, the, 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 the ignorance in this, because look, we, we, we've been part of this club for over 40 years. We know the rules. And to turn around and say, well, the Europeans are being completely unreasonable about this, unreasonable we were part of this group we helped to draw up these rules so it it doesn't make sense to me it really doesn't and i'm sure it doesn't well i I would imagine that um the europeans probably take the view well this is just another example of this rather peculiar eccentric british behavior but um yeah they've they it is a game of brinksmanship and in a sense um it, it does strike me as rather weird if you if you feel that boris johnson is playing a game here that he's basically trying to say to the europeans we are we, we really are going to jump we really are going to jump you don't want us to jump now do you and the europeans appear to be saying well actually we don't want you to jump but if you wish to do that then just go ahead because we're not going to stop you life goes on it goes on for us it goes on for you Yes, Europe is looking forward to lunch. We move now to the United States. (laughs) And a very nice one it will be too. Where Gatehouse Media looks set to acquire Gannett, publisher of newspapers including USA Today. On paper, the merger makes sense. Gatehouse has the largest number of titles. Gannett can boast the highest circulation. And at a time when print is having some trouble, joining forces might not be such a bad idea. But the the combination of these two companies would come with a serious catch. Some smaller city newspapers would almost certainly be forced to close. Charles, the, the could you possibly test the temperature of local news provision in, in the United States for us, please, if you wouldn't mind? Yeah, it's being squeezed from both the top and the bottom. Um, and while, um, you know, in discussing this earlier, Julia and I spoke about the sort of robust landscape um, on, on one level of, of local journalism, when it comes to dollars and cents, and when it comes to corporate mega mergers and the eventual spreadsheets that those bring out, um, when it when you fuse that with the challenge to smaller local media players brought by things like Facebook and other me- members of the internet that have created electronic local forums, which are the oxygen of local news, those community bulletin boards, the local news about things that are happening in the schools, about things that are happening in the mayor's office. Um, so what's happening, I think in response to your question, there's a squeeze at the top from money, there's a squeeze at the bottom from disruptive technology, and it's the small papers that are caught in between. Mm. And as a result, as a journalist, Juliet, I know that I find it harder and harder to find out exactly what is going on in places because there's an absence of local news. An example was a couple of years ago when Grenfell Tower here in London yes. burned because there had been uh, non you know, flammable cladding. Flammable cladding was on the outside of the building, but residents had campaigned for months and months and months to try and get something done about it. But there was no new local news outlet for them to actually have that voice put out somewhere. Mm. And this is a problem that's universal, isn't it? It, it is a problem that's universal and, and it's a great pity because th- there is a function for local newspapers but then 
speaking in my own community, there is a kickback. And again, this was something that we were discussing before we came on air. And this is where you've got sort of hyper-local newspapers. Now, I live in um, an area of southeast London, and there are a couple of freelance local journalists who spotted a gap in the market because southeast London is a big area. Well, South, South, South London is a huge area, but they wanted something which was a bit more microscopic. And so they set up this very tiny, tiny newspaper and you can pick it up for free. That, well, I get it in the dry cleaners or you can go to the local corner shop, whatever. And I like it because I really feel that I have a sense of what is happening in my local community. In other words, who's doing what, the local businesses, if there's a new shop, this is how it started this is what we aim to do. We want to be in the community for a very long time. They're highlighting events. They're highlighting little nuggets of local history. Things like this on a very microscopic level. Now, people assumed this wasn't going to succeed. It is succeeding. And that's the point because it connects itself to the heart of that local area. That's the kickback. Now, OK, it's a model which works well in my locality. Whether it's going to spread beyond that, I don't know. But clearly, these guys are quite optimistic about it because they've gone to the neighbouring area and they've tried to set up a similar model over there. They went crowdfunding. They were looking for around £4,500. They got about 9000 9, just over They've even managed to recruit somebody from one of the big titles, The Independent, to write for them on this microscopic paper. Maybe that's part of the kickback. But, you know, it doesn't mean that we should rub local papers out of the equation altogether because the tragedy is that, well, Grenfell Tower should never have happened. But maybe if those those local residents hadn't been shouting into a silo, maybe one of the nationals would have picked it up and made something of this and we could have actually prevented these deaths from happening. At the end of the day, though, it's all about money, isn't it, Charles? You have to, if you want to start a local paper, you have to be able to pay for it. And Juliet's given an example of something that that started in spite of that problem and seems to have mm. managed to manage the work. trend. That's right. Unless you hit on some sort of model, and 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 Juliet's example points towards both sort of crowdsourcing and actually using the technology that was at one point sort of beating you um, to sort of push back. That's fine. Um, I'm curious to know why companies actually still invest in print media. And I'm glad that these two companies are investing. You're sitting in a building which invests heavily in print media. Mm. No, you're right. I'm, I'm sorry, but we're talking about daily newspapers. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, daily newspapers, unless you are a powerhouse like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, um, it will be interesting to track this merger, to track its success, and to track the future of large daily newspapers. I mean, I did a little bit of research on this before coming into the studio. And some of the newspapers that are owned by Gannett in 2018 actually racked up a decent number of Pulitzer Prizes. Mm. So there's some healthy print journalism happening out there. And I used to work for the Miami Herald. I'm a big believer in in print media. Um, But I wonder what the business model is going forward. And I think that that the temple to print media that we're sitting in right now is a little bit different than the one that Gannett is forming in its merger. Mm. And it's always worth remembering with these big mergers is that they, they, well, I don't know the exact expression 
expression which they use for this, but they basically, when you translate it, it comes back to saving money, which means cutting staff. And the staff who are normally cut are the ones on the coal face. It's the journalists. And it therefore means that um, some of these good local stories may slip through the wayside, slip through the net, because you don't have the manpower to cover them. Or you, you then fall into the trap of lazy journalism, where it's a case of doing a bit of phone bashing and mixing that with some copy which you pick up from the agencies. And that's not really what a local paper should be doing. No, you, you need to have that relationship with your community. And exactly. snuffle out some good stories. Well, exactly. look, let's celebrate a bit of print media then and move on to our uh, newspaper review for the day. You're listening to Monocle 24. Monocle's September issue is here and we're getting busy in this bumper business edition. Before we get on with the job, we meet the new dean of New York's famed Parsons School of Design in the handsome surrounds of the Rose Reading Room in the city's public library. In affairs, we view the way to work through a diplomatic lens, joining the French ambassador to Italy to learn how to host 3,000 sharply dressed guests whilst showcasing the best assets of his nation, champagne and all. The business section is packed with insight from bright young entrepreneurs and seasoned CEOs alike. From a Spanish restaurateur with a new way of feeding customers to some bright new ideas on the four-day work week, we spin the globe and forecast the future of work. In culture, we put crowdfunding in the media to the test and find out what it takes for a new publication to stand out. Plus, we ask directors of some of the best museums how they manage. Then we retreat into the sun-soaked Californian countryside to relax in a modernist getaway that's been given a new lease of life. Our September issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. It's Emma Nelson here, and I'm joined in the studio by Charles Hecker and Juliet Foster. Okay, so you've been uh, having a rummage around. We've done Brexit. I feel as I'm just stretching my arms with satisfaction. We're not going there. to avoid Brexit. We're no, going to find not. a way to work it into our newspaper We always stories. do. It's like death, taxes and Brexit. These are the three unavoidable elements of life now. Um, talking of death, um, Charles, you wanted, to, you wanted to get your bucket list sorted out on air. Thanks well, for that. I'm, I'm going to sort my bucket list out on air, but I'm going to do that with a boost from The Times, <laughs> which on page 23 tells us that putting together bucket lists is actually ruining tourism. And it's ruining some of the world's most precious cities, the world's most precious venues and, and sites. And it, and it starts with the packed house viewing the Mona Lisa in the Louvre, which is now particularly uh, fraught because the, 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 the portrait has been moved to a special wing while the other wing undergoes renovations. In any case, this idea of putting together a list of places that you must go to before the final moment arrives, whether it's sooner or later, and we hope in everybody's case it's it's far in the distant future, the idea of putting together this must-visit list is strangling places like Barcelona. It's strangling Dubrovnik. It's strangling New Orleans. And the Times goes through a list of the $6.3 trillion tourism industry that is on everybody's bucket list all at the same time, all in the same position. Is this? I'm just wondering whether this is a. We're trying to work out now whether this is just a list of things that people want to do, or it would be really nice to go and see David and you know in in Florence, or whether this is a thing now that 
we have to sort of have a special list to do something. We have to ascribe a name to it, Juliet. Well, you know, that's the whole thing. The whole, the whole idea of a bucket list has changed. Because once upon a time, it was for those who knew that they were dying. And it's like, OK, you've got so many months or years to live. So you want to cram everything in to enjoy those moments. But now you don't have to be dying. You can just do what you want. So so, so that's the thing which sort of leapt out at me when I saw that. But I mean, um, I, I, I don't think that a bucket list should be visiting places. Yes, it, it should be visiting places, but it should also include acts which are significant to the individual. I haven't actually worked out my own bucket list because I'm quite healthy, but I have decided. In fact, I made this decision when the term bucket list was first coined. I have decided that um, if, I, if I'm if i ever diagnosed as terminally ill, I am going to start smoking again because I stopped smoking when I was about... So am I. It's wonderful, isn't it? Don't ever smoke. That's really bad for you. It kills you. But yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, I've got absolutely nothing to lose. And if the doctor says to me, have you started smoking again? I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, well, yes. And what are you going to do about it? I mean, what is the point? The accelerating bucket list. Exactly. Oh, Julia, also, we shouldn't be mentioning the, 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 we should be mentioning this on air. Yeah, but yes, but, it's but, one but of those I'm things. Going, I'm going to continue in the way that I started because also as well, when I was a teenager, <laughs> I remember going into into a chemist with my friend. I'm not going to say who what her name is. Actually, she's probably a politician now, someone very respectable, and she was shoplifting. And so she was taking bottles of nail polish and sort of dropping them down the sleeve. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm the, I'm part of a shoplifting gang. I never even realised it, and I, I didn't realise it. And her sister was waiting outside. She was older. This is the most anti-social bucket list it is I've ever heard. But her sister said, did you get it? They said, yeah, what colour would you like? And I thought, well, that's really neat because I've decided that one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to go shoplifting if I'm diagnosed as being terminally ill and I have my bucket list. I'm going to smoke and I'm going to go shoplifting and I'm going to go shoplifting at the, the Louis Vuitton store in Singapore because it's guarded by Gurkhas, armed Gurkhas. <laughs> You're stunned. We have Gurkhas at reception. If you just fancy an encounter with them, you could just pop no, no, outside. No, this, this is really, Try and nick this, a plant and is, see what this happens. This is really special. This is really special. So that's what I'd like to do. That's my bucket list. The Goodness lesson me. in all of this is check Juliet's bag before she leaves. Before she leaves the building. <laughs> Well, it's a bucket list of a difference, isn't it? Uh, beat that, Charles Hecker. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think so. <laughs> um, it's I, not disturbing tourism, let's for sure. I mean, it's it's annoying a lot of people if she's going to light up in a studio. Yeah, but she's going see, to start I've, I've got absolutely nothing cups. to lose. So <laughs> I will be so thick-skinned about it, so brazen, no one will care. They'll probably just. You're going to start a fight as well. No, no, no. I'd have to go into a pub to do that. I'm not brave enough to do that. Well, you only you only start a fight if you know you can win it. Okay. <laughs> My bucket list. Yes. Well, so it does include one tourism thing, and it's actually something that I'm very happy to say, also in robust health, touch wood, that I'm going to do next month. And and that is that I will be traveling from the very far north of Norway um, down to sort of southern Norway on the Norwegian postal boat, uh, which is something that I have always wanted to do. It has been at the very top of my bucket list. Um, and then really the rest of the bucket list has nothing to do with sort of going to places. It's more about just things that I want to sort of do with my life and things that I want to have accomplished. And one of the other ones is learning Japanese. And so I've been taking Japanese lessons for the past seven months. Uh, progress is slow. This so is it's, You are a man who will breathe his 
his last in a satisfied state, having ticked all the boxes. Well, you know, for, for, let, let's hope so. That's a, that's a very, very nice outlook. Um, all I can say is that it is it, it, the bucket list better be a long thing because for me to learn Japanese, it's going to take a number of years. You'll, well, you'll, well, surprise, you're yourself. you'll yeah. surprise yourself. You'll be speaking it fluently in a couple of years. Don't learn it too fast. It means you'll live longer. <laughs> exactly. uh, let's move on to another story. Uh, Guardian, page six. Worst blackout in 10 years was avoidable. Right. Anybody who was in the United Kingdom last Friday might have needed a torch because an, a large amount of the uh, British uh, national power disappeared. It was a very stormy day. Um, and then suddenly, before we all knew it, the lights all went out. Everybody thought that, um, well, lots of people talked about hacking, but actually it was just a bit of a mess, wasn't it, Juliet? <laughs> Cock well, up rather than conspiracy, I think they I, say. I agree, but weirdly I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Was it because you couldn't see it happening because it was dark? No, it's, it was daylight. <laughs> I mean, my computer was working. But, well, I, I went round to visit my parents and they didn't have a television on, so maybe it affected the TV. But, I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, this is, this is embarrassing for the government on several levels because, you know, this is infrastructure and people are inconvenienced. People found it difficult to travel. You've got businesses which found it difficult to function. They lost money. So that takes us into the issue of compensation because it seems that the grid has actually held its hand up to it. But... I'm sorry to bring Brexit back into this. One of the arguments about Brexit is that, yes, you can have a Britain which is unshackled. It can punch hard above its weight. It has to advertise itself. It has to sell itself as an attractive destination for companies to invest in. And if we cannot get our infrastructure together in as important an area as this, it does beg the question, well, what is the point? Because, you know, you have to check your infrastructure regularly to make sure that it is working, especially given the the, the service of technology we have to keep up with it we have to incorporate it into the fabric of this country and clearly if we're not doing that it doesn't really sell us very well in a post-brexit age so this brings us to a series of very rich ironies and that is that first of all we've learned in other pieces of journalism around today and in, in, in the in online and in print that the uk is actually one of the world's lowest investors in its own infrastructure and so guess what's going to have to happen after October 31st? And that is that the United Kingdom is going to have to start turning to foreign investment in its infrastructure. Hang on. I thought that most of our infrastructure was at least if you look at something like the London's transport networks, that's owned by the French, the Germans, the Italians, and actually by the Italian governments. These are all national. And, you know, EDF, Electricité de France, owns a lot of our stuff. That's true. They're getting a lot of money every month from me for my electricity bill. <laughs> um, but there's, there's more to come. And, and, and there are other parts, whether it's the national grid or whether it's um, the phone company or whether it's, you know, water and, and other utilities mm. and other sort of public goods um, are, that are still owned by the UK or by domestic um, companies or that require support from the state budget. They're going to find that money lacking. And so we are going to have to blow open the doors. I mean, you're absolutely right to point out the level of foreign investment in the UK, but we're going to have to throw open the doors even wider. And one of the most ironic examples of that is on page one of the FT today, where we learn that British Steel which has been functioning in receivership for the past number of months, is going to be bought 
by the Turkish Military Pension Fund. And that's all we have time for today, I'm afraid, bringing us to the end of today's Monocle House View. My thanks to Juliet Foster and Charles Hacker for coming in today and for going through the papers and going through the news so expertly. My thanks to our producer, Ben Ryland, researcher Charlie Filmercourt, and our studio manager, Nora Hall. Monocle's House View is live again this time next week. And for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye, thanks for listening and enjoy your weekend. Thank you.